Secretary Clinton, you're not in the White House yet. Not yet. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, many other fine affiliates, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us once again as we try to make sense of it all, as they say on the, uh, on the theme song there. Well, the two remaining 2016 Democratic presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, faced off once again on Thursday night at a debate, this time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was their first debate since uh, Bernie Sanders' decisive, even record-breaking 22-point victory over Hillary Clinton at the New Hampshire primary on, uh, on Tuesday. The debate... On Thursday night, was sponsored and produced by PBS. It was also simulcast on CNN, moderated by um, the PBS NewsHour's Gwen Ifill and Judy Woodruff. And it marked the first time that there was an all-female duo moderating a Democratic debate. Uh, also, as uh, Hillary Clinton pointed out, it was the first time that women actually outnumbered men on a presidential debate stage. That was kind of cool. Uh, Sanders and Clinton... Both slugged it out on a number of topics in advance of the race uh, that is now broadening out to uh, to the Nevada caucuses in a week or so. Then it heads down to South Carolina a week later and then Super Tuesday, where more than a dozen states will hold caucuses and primaries on March 1. God save us all. There has been uh, very little polling in either Nevada or South Carolina up until now, with much of the media having been focused for months on Iowa and New Hampshire, and with the difficulty of polling for Nevada's caucuses in particular. But uh, there is a new poll out today now, uh, the first one of the year in Nevada, showing that after uh, Clinton had been believed to have a decisive advantage in Nevada and South Carolina— both states with a more diverse electorate than Iowa or New Hampshire. Well, according to this new poll, at least the pair are now said to be virtually tied in Nevada. 
according to that first poll out this year in the state. Uh, that's a Washington Free Beacon Target Point poll. It was released on Friday, showing uh, both of the candidates tied at 45% now in Nevada. But again, that's just one poll at this point. It well could be an outlier. We won't know until there's more polls, more data available. And uh, again, it could reflect the difficulty of polling Nevada's caucus system, to be frank. Previous polls had shown Clinton with a double-digit lead there, but everything may well be changing and changing quickly following the the New Hampshire primary where Sanders just dominated every single demographic just about uh, up uh, up in the Granite State, suggesting to some at least that he may be much more electable than national media, at least, had previously regarded him to be. Here to make sense of Thursday night's uh, Democratic debate up in Wisconsin, I'm happy, very happy to welcome back longtime journalist, former CNN and current TV reporter, uh, and the first ever Internet correspondent on cable news, Jackie Schechner, who also worked in D.C. as the National Communications Director for Health Care for America Now, the nation's largest health care reform campaign. And she also happened to be in Paris uh, not long ago working on Al Gore's climate reality project when the Paris terror attacks broke out. Jackie Schechner, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be a part of it. Great to have you here as ever. Also joining us, David Dayan, our old friend, financial reporter and contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, New Republic, Washington Post, The Intercept, American pro- uh, Prospect, and just about everywhere else. Hey, David, welcome back to the broadcast as well, sir. Uh, pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, we will get into a lot of the specific moments in the debate shortly, but I want to start with a few broader questions. Oh, and yes, okay. Forgot oh, yeah. You. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. There's, there's Desi Doyen, our producer. Hi, yeah. Desi. Hi. I'm here, too. I'll welcome you to the broadcast as well. Well, thanks. It's the least I nice can do. Nice of you. All right. Now, I want to get into the specifics in a moment. <laughs> But let's go to some of these broader questions first. Uh, Jackie, last night you tweeted, if you put a Dem debate and GOP debate side by side, you would think they were competitions for leaderships of two completely different countries. You're right, actually. That was a great point. It was very true. But that said... Uh, Well, the first debate since Sanders' 22-point win in New Hampshire, one might have expected more fireworks, I think, than than we saw. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but I thought it was a bit more subdued than previous debates. And uh, uh, is is that because both of them are exhausted by now? Is it because it was on PBS? Or am I just totally wrong about it and and, uh, it was me who was tired last night, not them? No, I, you know, I, I think it's a combination of it. Uh, first of all, they, they both seem tired. Uh, Sanders, I think, a little more so than Clinton. Uh, we could hear him coughing in the background while she was speaking a few times. Mm-hmm. I actually tweeted after that, somebody get him a lozenge, because I, I think that he, and we heard it in his acceptance speech in New Hampshire, too. Like, he's, he's tired, and I think it would suit them both to have a couple of days off. Um, and I also think that they're both trying very hard, or at least I feel like he is, to keep the rhetoric civil. Um, I think that they are seeing what's going on on the Republican side, and they don't want to go anywhere near it. And so the feeling I get, at least, is that they're trying to counter each other and be respectful while doing it. And there are times when it gets a little heated because that's the nature of uh, sharing your thoughts and opinions in that format. Mm -hmm. 
But I, I do think that they're making a conscious effort not to get to where the Republican field is and to keep it above that fray. I think that's what part of what sets them apart and makes me very, very proud to be on the Democratic side. David, day and last week, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, CEO, I think it was last week, uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, one of the largest investment banks in the world, said on CNBC that the Sanders campaign, quote, represents, quote, a dangerous moment not just for Wall Street, not just for the people who are particularly targeted, but for anybody who is a little bit out of line, unquote. Does that suggest that Wall Street is actually really worried at this point about a Sanders victory over Clinton? Are, are, are they really are the bankers really as worried about a Sanders presidency or even a Sanders moment as that quote would would suggest? Or am I reading too much into that, David? I think there is, uh, you know, looking at this campaign uh, like everybody else and seeing uh, you know something that, uh, that I'm sure they take as fairly improbable that someone who spends most of his campaign bashing the, the industry that they work in uh, is, is getting a lot of positive reception to that message. And whether, whether Sanders wins or not, it can't help but move the country in a certain direction. Uh, you, you even see this with Senator uh, Secretary Clinton's mm-hmm. rhetoric about Wall Street saying that she has a tougher plan, that no bank should be too big to fail, and that no executive should be uh, too big to jail. I mean, she is adopting a lot of this rhetoric, and it's kind of boxing her in, where in, in a uh, hypothetical Clinton administration, uh, you know, that the antennae of the Democratic base is going to be very attuned to that. So whether or not Sanders wins, his campaign is proving what a good message it is to look upon the people who perpetrated the largest uh, uh, recession since the Great Depression mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and point to them as a malign force in our economy. So uh, you know, I think Blankfein's justified. It is dangerous. It's dangerous to him. To, right, to, to uh, him. And, and, and he's a guy that thinks what's good for Goldman Sachs is good for America. But even if uh, all of Sanders' uh, programs uh, were put forward, uh, you know, reform of the tax system, uh, getting rid of the offshore uh, havens, tax havens and so forth, mm-hmm. all of the, uh, the, the speculation uh, tax to, to fund his college tuition plan, even if all of that happened, do these bankers, I mean, these bankers would still be multimillionaires and billionaires. This wouldn't actually hurt them, would it? It would just make them, you know, sort of less obscene in their in their earnings. A- am I right? Well, I mean, I'm not a banker. I mean, I don't know what, yes, what you they're are. hurt by if they're, <laughs> you know, if their bank account says 50 million instead of 200 million. I would say that they probably think that's a, a great deal of hurt even though the, the comparison to uh, an ordinary plumber or pipe fitter would be, uh, you know, kind of mm-hmm. ludicrous. But, uh, yes, I mean, the, the, the truth is that uh, Sanders is, uh, his program is not socialism in the sense of taking control of the means of production. It's uh, a democratic socialism that is still has a, a large role for capitalism and capitalist success. Uh, just one in which uh, the fruits of capitalism are more broadly shared. 
Uh, Let me jump in real quickly, if I can, just on this, because there's something that I think is important to note, is that Bernie Sanders' message definitely is pushing Secretary Clinton farther to the left, which is what he's intending to do. But this messaging, this anti-Wall Street messaging, is not all that different than what President Obama ran on. And I think the problem that we're running into in general is that this is very good messaging for the electorate, uh, especially for progressives. I fear that once Secretary Clinton gets elected, if she does, that not all that much is going to happen. And I think that that's where progressives or Democrats who really like Sanders' message draw this distinction between the two, because the fear is, yes, like Sanders said last night, Wall Street doesn't just throw money at Secretary Clinton because it's got money to spare. It's expecting something in return. And the idea being that the rhetoric and the campaign messaging may be on point right now, but frankly, what holds her accountable when she's elected? Well, and if it's not I... her messaging from the yeah, if it's not her messaging from the beginning, but it's messaging that she adopted to get elected, right? What then? What then keeps her in line once she holds off? Well, one thing I would say in response to that, there's a very uh, notable coalition that actually put out uh, a, 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 pro, a platform just in the last 24 hours, and it's about presidential appointments and and the importance of presidential appointments, and the biggest thing that both a Clinton administration can do and that the U.S. Senate can check her on Mm -hmm. is her appointments to key positions like the Treasury Secretary or the Attorney General or the head of the SEC. And the idea all along kind of for a a subset of the Progressive Coalition, which includes Elizabeth Warren, this has been her main point throughout this entire primary process is that personnel is policy. Mm -hmm. That if you Mm -hmm. have a set of people in the room that are more inclined to think about the American homeowner than the balance sheets of the banks, then you get a different outcome uh, in in a moment of of crisis or even in just a normal, regular moment. Um, So the way that, that, that the secretary can be held to account is by looking at who she chooses to staff those very key regulatory positions that interpret and enforce the laws on the books that have a great deal of power and 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 you know go a long way into assessing you know what actually uh, you know whether these these promises are are kept. And that's something, David, that I, I know you have written about uh, in regard to Elizabeth Warren uh, over the years and her successes. Uh, in actually blocking certain appointments right. to so certain boards and so forth. Base, yeah. and she has a lot of people who, who follow her and will take action on her behalf. And she has been successful in stopping some uh, uh, appointments that uh, she perceived as being too close to Wall Street under the Obama administration. And, and, so and Clinton ca- has to know she'll do that again. I was going to say, and so a case could be made here that even if everything does go south uh, for Bernie Sanders at this point, Hillary Clinton is sort of locking herself in uh, it's absolutely correct. A lot of it's positions and a lot and, of... You know, political yeah. science shows that most presidents try to keep their campaign promises when, if and when they get into office. And so making these promises at the outset, you know, getting Hillary Clinton on the record to say, I'm not going to cut Social Security, that has value. 
It does. And uh, even when it comes in a tweet, perhaps especially when it comes yeah. in, as in a tweet, because everybody <laughs> sees it at once. Yeah, as, as uh, Hillary Clinton did last week, once the Sanders campaign pushed her to make right. that position, uh, that position that I will not right. cut Social Security. Uh, OK, we've we got to get to a break um, shortly. But one more thought I want to get in before we do, and then we'll get into the meat of the uh, uh, of the debate. But PBS uh, the new, uh, Gwen Ifill and uh, uh, Judy Woodruff brought up, I think, by my count, at least three different questions that m- may have been, you know, handed to them by the Republican Party specifically about the size of government, how large it should be, as if, you know, government. I think they said at one point is twenty one percent of GDP. How large would you make it? My first question, I guess, here is. Uh, personally, I feel like who cares? You know, if you add a, a trillion dollars to the GDP, putting people to work, it doesn't seem like it matters whether it comes from government or whether it comes from the private sector. That this is a Republican meme, but maybe I am wrong, David. Uh, Dane, we talked about it. I think a little bit last time you were on. But does it matter where money comes from if people are put? to work and then that money subsequently makes its way into the economy is this a success for republicans just because we talk this way about the size of government not not even regulations and so forth but just how much money they spend as if that's a goal in and of itself as a small government smaller government right yes I, i i do think it's it's a success for the right in terms of their messaging i'll give you a a an illustrative example so Michael Moore has this movie that, that, that releases today called uh, uh, Where to Invade Next. Mm-hmm. And one of, the thing, one of the points he makes in that movie is, is reframing the idea of taxes. So uh, if you look at the tax, because he, he goes to all these countries in Europe, and he looks at, at, at some of their good ideas, and he says that he wants to reclaim them for the United States. Mm-hmm. So, for example, he says, you know, well, you, they, they do pay higher taxes in a place like Denmark, Norway, in Scandinavia. They pay higher taxes. However, what that doesn't take into account is child care expenses that, that uh, American parents pay in the United States, or health care premiums, or all of these other things. They're not taxes, but if the government is giving them to you in substitution uh, for, for the taxes that you're paying, uh, it's effectively the same thing, Right. And so you can talk about the size of government, but if the, the, the incorporated in that size of government are a host of goods and services that you then do not have to worry about as part of your private income, mm-hmm. then it's a completely different scenario. And, you have to make the right comparison. And, and, that, and that goes to uh, uh, Bernie's point and, and uh, the, the debate they have been having over health care. We're going to talk about yeah. that after this break. But let me very quickly, Jackie, let me get a thought, because you were at CNN for a, a while. T- uh, tell me about the way that the, the media sort of adopt these talking points, whether they make sense or not, because, you know, the Republicans are saying this because the Republicans are demanding that, for some reason, government be smaller. Corporate media, and in this case, PBS of all outlets, feel they need to adopt those political memes. Where does that come from, and and did you see that during your time at CNN? It's a strange line of questioning, and I would just say that somewhere along the way, the idea of government as the enemy became the problem, because government in other countries is seen as the tool of the people, and is seen as 
an entity for good. And somewhere along the way, I mean, I think it's comical people run for office who hate government. Right. So it, it, it's, it's a tremendous somewhere irony. Somewhere along the way, by the way, we can pinpoint where along the way it happened. Well, it's, it's Ronald Reagan, Reagan. saying yep. that, the, you know, the most dangerous words in the English language or I'm from the government, not yep. here to help. Yeah, and that has been a third. What are we at now? Thirty-five year, uh, uh, almost. Uh, yeah, thirty-five year con. Yeah. I believe that uh, Reagan uh, put over on the American people, and that it seems like the media, both the corporate media and, unfortunately, uh, PBS, which I guess really is now corporate media as well, uh, seem to have adopted. Yeah, it was a it was a strange line of questioning. I, I don't understand why. The, the size of government was, was even mentioned. It, it should be more about efficiency in government or how money spent or getting the waste and fraud out of these, these particular places where money yeah. is being misspent. But, but size is such an odd... It's such an odd way to frame it. And it I was, don't really know where it came from. And not even once, but literally three different times. I couldn't believe when they came back from their first commercial, and yes, they now have commercials, it seems, on PBS, uh, You know, came back and brought it up again. Yeah, so they had time for three different questions on the sides of government. And of course, you know, my wheelhouse, not a moment to ask about climate change or energy. Oh, you at and all. You, you and you single issue. That whole uh, existential uh, thing. You, Forget you, about you that. You single issue voters. We'll get into that single issue uh, uh, vote in, in a few minutes here. I got to take a quick break. I'm speaking with, uh, who am I speaking with? Uh, Jackie... <laughs> Jackie Schechner and David Day. And We've made an impression. You have uh, fine journalists <laughs> both and even uh, Desi Doyen. See? Me too. I remembered you this time. All right, a quick break, and we're back with much more of our post-democratic debate coverage right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Today, Senator Sanders said that President Obama failed the presidential leadership test. And this is not the first time that he has criticized President Obama. Uh, in the past, he's called him weak. He's called him a disappointment. He uh, wrote a forward for a book that uh, basically argued uh, voters should have buyer's remorse when it comes to uh, President Obama's uh, leadership and legacy. The kind of criticism that we've heard from Senator Sanders about our president, I expect from Republicans, I do not expect from someone running for the Democratic nomination to succeed President that Obama. That is... Uh, Madam Secretary, that is a low blow. Oh, I was low, Gabriella. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Post-Democratic uh, debate coverage from Thursday night's 
debate up in Wisconsin with my guests today, Jackie Schechner and David Dayen, uh, financial reporter David Dayen, and uh, Jackie Schechner, uh, healthcare uh, journalist, activist. I, I, I think that's the right way to call you, uh, to call you Jackie. Um, you had a. Um, uh, a tweet. Well, actually, let me play a little bit more because that was sort of unfair in, in that we ended it there with uh, with uh, Sanders decrying the low blow from Hillary Clinton. Let me play his response in full, and then I'll get your thoughts, uh, Jackie and David, on on this one. Madam Secretary, that is a low blow. Last I heard, we lived in a democratic society. Last I heard, a United States senator had the right to disagree with a president, including a president who has done such an extraordinary job. So I have voiced criticisms. You're right, maybe you haven't. I have. But I think to suggest that I have voiced criticism, this blurb that you talk about, you know what the blurb said? Blurb said that the next president of the United States has got to be aggressive in bringing people in to the political process. That's what I said. That is what I believe. Calling the president weak, calling him a disappointment, calling several times that he should have a primary opponent when he ran for re-election in 2012. You know, I think that goes further than saying we have our disagreements. As a we, senator, yes, so, I was a senator. I understand we can disagree on the path forward. But those kinds of personal oh. assessments and charges are ones that I find well, senator, uh, particularly like troubling. To, I mean, you may respond to that, but it's time now for closing statements. And you can use your time for closing statements well, to do that. One of us ran against Barack Obama. I was not that candidate. <laughs> well, me, yow. Uh, so, uh, Jackie and David, I will both get, want to get both of your thoughts on that. Uh, she has used this uh, attack before. She is wrapping herself in uh, in Obama, so to speak. Uh, I think unfairly referencing, uh, well, maybe not. I was going to say unfairly referencing that blurb that he, uh, that Bernie Sanders uh, included on Bill Press's book, although that uh, book is about Obama being a disappointment to progressives. Uh, and in fact, Bernie Sanders has talked, uh, did talk, uh, you know, about the possibility of a primary challenge to uh, to Obama back in 2012. So is that fa is that a, a fair line of criticism from Hillary Clinton, as you see it, Jackie? I have absolutely no problem with uh, Bernie Sanders challenging President Obama. This doesn't bother me one bit. And I think that going after him for it is uh, is a low blow and unnecessary. Uh, because, frankly, I mean, let's be totally honest, while President Obama has done some good stuff, he is a disappointment to progressives. He was a disappointment. Uh, I worked on health care reform. That was my single issue. Mm -hmm. uh, he made a lot of promises during the campaign, and when we went into the fight for health care reform, he didn't follow through on those promises. I can think in particular when we lost the public option. He spent 80% of his advertising in October of 2008 talking about what kind of system we were going to have. And on one side was single-payer, the other side was private insurance, and he argued that we were going to have something in the middle that was going to be a mix that included a public option. And when that became difficult, he dropped it. And I think that as somebody who uh, really not only drank the Kool-Aid, but frankly mixed the Kool-Aid and passed it out, <laughs> I was really disappointed in the way that he negotiated or, or didn't negotiate 
with Republicans and some blue dog Democrats. Okay, so, so while I think so, while it it's a, a fair for uh, anyone, Bernie Sanders in this case, to criticize the president, are you saying it's also fair for her to call him out on that? And uh, and is it therefore effective? Uh, yeah, he was critical of, uh, of of the president. Is that? Effective. Actually, I guess, does that work for her or does that work better for Bernie? Who does that end up uh, redounding to, uh, Jackie? Well, I think that it's a non-factor. I mean, in terms of, like, I don't think it's a nice thing for her to do to attack him and say that he attacked the president. What he's trying to do, I think, is speak to his base, which are progressives who really want somebody who believes in being progressive. And I think, I think there's some part of uh, the party that believes that President Obama was never really that progressive and that uh, some people just projected that onto him. Others say he sold himself as a progressive and he wasn't. Uh, so it really depends on which camp you buy into on that. Um, but I don't have a problem with it. I mean, we look on the Republican side and you've got the whole Tea Party segment that actually drove the Republican Party so far to the right mm-hmm. that they don't even know where they stand anymore. Uh, so why is it a bad thing for people on the left to say we would like our president to be more of a Democrat in the way we see it, so to be da- more of a left Democrat. David Dayan, does that uh, does that end up? And Jackie, I think makes a very very good point. That said, among the uh, Democratic electorate, or at least among the primary Democratic primary electorate, it, it, does her argument work? in her favor or in Bernie Sanders' favor, as, right. uh, as Jackie suggests? I think we can separate it out, and we can talk about uh, you know, the way that, that Jackie said, that it's obviously okay to, to criticize a, a, a sitting president and, and have a difference of opinion. You don't have to line up behind them uh, like automatons. But we can separate that out and say politically this is a good move for Hillary Clinton. Uh, not only is Barack Obama enjoying among Democrats probably an 80% approval rating. What we know is that in South Carolina, he has closer to a 90% approval rating. And so, you know, we've seen Hillary Clinton using Barack Obama as a human shield. And, and she's doing it because the polling, the polling tells her that that makes a lot of sense and that, you know, generally... The, the primary electorate in the upcoming states thinks that Obama has done an excellent job and that uh, a, a candidate for the Democratic nomination coming in with critiques of the president mm-hmm. is not going to uh, have a, a great impression on that primary electorate. And, I think- and so that, that's, that's just the sad reality of this. I, I don't have to like it to... to recognize that it's effective that it's astute but doesn't it also have to do with race i mean isn't there also a oh, very large african-american population right and so the idea is that she she is going to say that he's criticizing the black president because he's from vermont it's a white state like he's not the least bit racist but his economic message will resonate with an african-american impoverished african-american population right. and so in order to negate that She's wrapping herself in the first black president. And we we should say that South Carolina's uh, primary electorate on the Democratic side is, uh, it might even be majority. Yeah, I think it's 55% African-American. And as long as you bring it up, as long as Jackie played the race card, uh, (laughs) 
Let me. Leave it to the woman to play the race card. Yeah, way to go, Jackie. <laughs> well, as long as as long as you brought this up, and, and I'll open this up to all three of you, if anybody has a can help me out here. Um, I don't understand the uh, supposed huge African American support for Hillary Clinton. I didn't understand it. For Bill Clinton, I didn't understand when they called him the first black president. You know, it seems to me between welfare reform and, uh, uh, you know, uh, criminal uh, sentencing, well, criminal sentencing. Right. I, he, it, I, I don't understand why the black community seems to identify so much more with Hillary Clinton uh, than Bernie Sanders, I guess. But it, so is this just a sort of a remnant, a legacy of. Of, of democratic machine politics she has been around so long uh, d- 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 tell me why she's so popular yeah please do um one thing is that the the 1990s and particularly the late 1990s was the last time that wages rose broadly in this country uh and and they rose for all sectors they did not just rise for the rich because we had close to full employment uh jobs were very plentiful uh, at all levels of the economy, and that includes uh, the African-American community, communities of poverty. Um, one reason that they got away with welfare reform is because in the late 90s, uh, less people were in the position to require uh, significant public assistance. And so uh, there is an era of good feeling kind of uh, mentality to the late 1990s in terms of where the economy was. Now, a yep. lot of that was built on, on a, a castle made of sand because we mm-hmm. ended up with the dot-com bubble that burst the stock market uh, mm-hmm. bubble in the uh, beginning of 2000s, and, uh, which led to the housing bubble, which then burst. So, so a lot of this was sort of based on asset bubbles. Yeah, but- However, it's undeniable that the rising tide did lift all boats in the late 1990s. Yes, it did, David. But if that is the case, wouldn't that also redound to uh, support for her from uh, low-income voters across the board, not just the African-American communities, but, well, not lo- just low, but low- and middle-income uh, voters across the board? Well, I just want to say, I think that the difference here, at least in this current campaign, uh, you know, including the 1990s good feeling, but that in this campaign, Bernie Sanders talks about uh, mostly the economic triggers, mm-hmm. the economic factors and trends that are at work keeping the middle class and the lower income people down. Whereas Hillary Clinton talks about rights. She doesn't talk about the economic underlying reason why we have all of these issues that we're working with and grappling with now. She talks about, I want to expand LGBT rights. I want to expand women's rights, fight sexism, fight the you know mandatory sentencing and, and criminal racial disparity and criminal sentencing. So I think because yep. she focuses on rights as what she wants to expand versus Bernie Sanders talking about, I want to change the economic structure underneath. I think that that speaks more to those communities. Let me add one more thing. And, and that is that in, in my experience, and this, this doesn't necessarily just come from me, but it comes from, you know, African-American writers and thinkers that I know is that the, the African-American electorate for the Democrats is extremely loyal and one reason that it's extremely loyal is that there is an innate fear that if the other party comes into power, that's going to, you know, the things that would happen would be more devastating for the African-American community than they would be for well-off white liberals, necess- you know, in, uh, just to, just to mm-hmm. use, you know, that, that terminology. 
let me. Uh, let and me, so they, yeah. they, they care about electability more. That's my point. Well, they and. They care about this electability argument and, much more, and it's, it's loyal machine politics. Well, if it's about electability, then that, then that may change. The, the, the view, the support that uh, uh, Hillary and Bernie get may change as Sanders becomes more electable. Right. Remember appearing. that in 2008, they had to be, con- uh, you know, the, the, the African American community was not on board with Barack Obama originally. That's because true. they had to be convinced that he had what it took to take it all the way and win the president. Okay, let me get into some specific issues here. And uh, Jackie, you may, you may have a thought on all of that, but I'll, I'll allow you to put it into your response to health care as if uh, this was a debate. This is, uh, once again, they went back to, uh, you know, to fight over Bernie's call for a single-payer Medicare for All plan. Here is a bit of that conversation. Secretary Clinton has been going around the country saying Bernie Sanders wants to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. We're not going to dismantle anything. In my view, health care is a right of all people, not a privilege, and I will fight for that. Well, I can only say that we both share the goal of universal health care coverage. I am a staunch supporter of President Obama's principal accomplishment, namely the Affordable Care Act. I know how hard it was to get that done. And it is difficult to in any way argue with the goal that we both share, but I think the American people deserve to know specifically how this would work. If it's Medicare for all, then you no longer have the Affordable Care Act because the Affordable Care Act, as you know very well, is based on the insurance system, based on exchanges, based on a subsidy system. So if you're having Medicare for all, single payer, you need to level with people about what they will have at the end of the process you are uh, proposing. And based on every analysis that I can find by people who are sympathetic to the goal, the numbers don't add up. Okay, we'll talk about the numbers in a second. But uh, Jackie Schechner, I know that you worked as hard and as long as really anybody on this uh, as uh, National Communications Director at Healthcare for America now at the time that uh, they were trying to get uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare passed. I would think, mm-hmm. I find it incredibly dishonest, frankly, to frame this whole thing as Sanders wanting to dismantle the Affordable Care Act when, in fact, he wants to replace it with a, a, a single-payer system, a Medicare-for-all system. But you worked very hard to get the ACA passed. I would think you would be somewhat sympathetic, at least, to the argument that Hillary is making you know, that it was just way too difficult uh, to, to get that passed uh, as far as suddenly now going in a different direction with single-payer Medicare for all. W- what are your thoughts on this, and is it is it just too difficult to do right now? Is Hillary right? We should move on to some other issues for the time being, at least. Well, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, practicality is not inspirational, and I think that's part of why she's not resonating with people that she should be resonating with, because she's not wrong. It's a heavy lift. It will continue to be a heavy lift. But that's not what the electorate wants to hear. And I think that that in and of itself, while it's correct that there's only so much that we can do, I I don't think that that's a strong political message when you're running for office. The second part is that I don't think either one of them is going to get anything done with regard to health care in the immediate future. I, I just think we're exhausted. I think it was, it was an incredibly heavy lift. Uh, we're all a little bit burnt out from it. I think the Affordable Care Act did a lot of really good things, and it opened the door to make changes down the line, but not until we hit 
an extraordinary tipping point are we going to be ready to launch back into that fight again? And believe me, if I think that we are, I'll be on the front lines of it. Well, but, he, but, but he's building a lot. I don't lot, think we're there yet. But Bernie Sanders is building a lot of his campaign around the idea of uh, health care for all, health care as a right. And I think that's where actually Desi Doyen, uh, you're wrong about Hillary calling for rights. Bernie's been you know, calling for rights, health care yeah, rights. But he frames but, it as an economic argument but, rather than civil rights, which okay. is what I was talking about, the difference about what resonates with the community. Okay. Well, so. fair, fair enough. Sure, right. And he brings it up. Look, he brings it up all the time, and it is one component of where they 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 disagree or they differ uh, because there's not all that much difference between them as far as getting a Democrat into office and, and continuing down this path that we're on that President Obama has started. But let's let's be frank about how our political system works for a moment. Neither one of them is going to get anything past Congress unless we get a Democratic Congress, unless we get more Democrats into office in the House and the Senate Neither one of them is going to get anything. And of course, that's the that's the argument that uh, Bernie is making that elect me because I will get out more people. You will end up with more Democrats uh, in in the House and Senate if I run. And of course, Hillary is making. We're looking. Yeah, go ahead. We're looking at four more years of Benghazi. Frankly, I mean, we're looking for four for at four more years of illegal email servers. I mean, the GOP hates her as much as they hate Obama. So I I do think uh, in terms of what he's saying, it is more inspirational. Uh, It definitely hits a nerve with progressives who say that we should have gone for single payer the first time around, which was not a a practical reality. And and I had this discussion with many single payer advocates when we first started with HCAN that you weren't going to, they said, why not go to the negotiating table with single payer and then find a middle? And I Mm -hmm. said, there wouldn't have been any table had we started with single payer. Mm. People are scared. They don't want to lose the status quo. I think the longer we and stew in the status quo of insurance company abuse and scam, the closer we'll get to the opportunity to figure out how to push them out of our, our health care system. And, but they're too strong. They're too powerful. They make too much money. They own too much of the medical industrial complex. So I, yeah, but I they but they really are not know. they are not unseated ever on, until you take them on and you take them on over a long period of time. And to Bernie's credit, whether it succeeds or not, you need to keep talking about it. You need to keep saying it. You need to normalize the idea that you know what healthcare is a right, and uh, private insurers have no business, you know, making money from our illness basically because they don't really provide anything. And and let yep. me just also note, since you referenced the quote unquote illegal server, you were being sarcastic right now. Uh, we have no evidence that there was an illegal email oh, server. Yeah, and I'm only yeah, saying, no, no, I, I just want to clear that up because, you know, people may hear that that is what Republicans are repeating. And I know you didn't mean it that way. You were being sarcastic. Let me ask David very quickly before we get to free college here, David. Uh, they say we talked about this before, but let's just very quickly. She says his numbers don't add up. He's she's, he's talking about um, a, a Wall Street. T- oh, actually. Where, where does his uh, uh, money come from for the uh, single payer for his Medicare for All system? Where does it come from? Uh, and do those numbers? Tax, uh, through part of it through the payroll tax, mm-hmm. and part of it through uh, graduations of the income tax. Most of the income tax stuff falls on uh, the wealthy, mm-hmm. uh, but most 
you know, the payroll tax falls on, on everybody. So is uh, when she says that progressive econom- uh, economists have said his numbers don't add up for single yeah. payer, is she right about that? Or well, do she's his talking numbers? about somebody very specific, uh, mm-hmm. and the name is escaping me right now, but uh, that person showed that she's basically talking about the amount that Sanders assumes uh, will be saved by moving to a single-payer system. And, and that individual who, who ran through a report of it said, mm-hmm. you won't be able to save as much money as you think, and therefore your taxes, because uh, Sanders was fairly vague on the design of the program, mm-hmm. but very specific about the taxes that he would assess. Uh, and basically what this guy was saying is that you, you're not going to save as much out of the system. You're not going to wring as much efficiency out of the system as you think, and your, your taxes are going to have to go up maybe double where you are now. So and, that's the argument that they're having. And, but, so is it a legitimate criticism? Or well, that guy's the guy right? is sympathetic to the idea of universal health care. I, I, I wish that we would get a little more specific about who we're talking about when we're talking about uh, the, the people left behind under Obamacare. You know, uh, Senator Sanders said that uh, 29 million people today don't have health care. Well, who is he talking about? A large percentage uh, is uh, undocumented immigrants who are not allowed even to buy into the exchanges with their own money. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so a lot of them are put on the sidelines. So is that really about health care? Is that about the immigration system? Uh, Number two is the uh, either the people who fall into sort of this trap in states that haven't expanded Medicaid mm-hmm. and they're too poor uh, to uh, uh, get subsidies on the exchanges, but too rich, quote-unquote, right. uh, to, to get Medicaid from their state. Uh, that's, that's a gap, and, and, and you have to figure out how to deal with that. And one way is to, to really run a campaign to get to accept the Medicaid expansion. Well, and that's because Republicans uh, were able to have that victory in the Supreme, in the Supreme Court, Court that exactly. allowed mm-hmm. them exactly. to decide. So is that a, a yeah. health care question or is that a Supreme Court question? Is that a state organizing question? And then the third bucket is people uh, for whom health care, uh, health insurance, even with the subsidies on the exchange, is actually too expensive. And let that me... they, they hit an affordability hardship where they don't have to abide by the mandate. And that's really a question of how much in subsidies we have. Let me let me let me do this, David, because uh, I, I got to do a break shortly. But let me run this very quick. This is on the free college tuition because it sort of plays into the idea that uh, when it comes to health care, that a lot of these people who do not have coverage do not have it because they're eligible for Medicaid under Obamacare, but the Republican governors are keeping them from getting it. On a similar uh, uh, vein here, here was uh, Hillary Clinton talking about Bernie Sanders' plan for free college tuition Mm -hmm. for all that would be paid for by a tax on the um, uh, Wall Street financial transaction transaction tax. You know, I, I think, again, both of us share the goal of trying to make college affordable for all young Americans. If you don't have some agreement within the system from states and from families and from students, it's hard to get to where we need to go. And Senator Sanders' plan really rests on making sure that governors like Scott Walker contribute $23 billion on the first day to make college free. I'm a little skeptical about your governor actually caring enough about higher education to make any kind of 
commitment like that. Very quickly, before we go to a break, David, uh, uh, about 30 seconds here. Explain yeah. to me why would that free college tuition plan rec- uh, rely on because people like Republican Governor, Governor Scott Walker? Of, that's where Sanders gets some of the money from in his plan is to sort of plus up the contribution, traditional contribution that states give to higher ed. Uh, Walker just last year took four hundred and fifty million out of higher ed in in the state of Wisconsin. So, so it doesn't so, all it's a come. Legitimate thing for for Hillary Clinton to say is that what what is your governor going to contribute to this program? There are two answers to that. Number one is well, uh, maybe the money has to be you know found in the federal budget. Number one or number two, it is not uh, a a static situation that there will be re- Republican governors all over the country that are undermining uh, a duly elected president. We actually can change who the governor is in these states. And uh, so, you know, it seems like Hillary keeps searching for the impracticalities uh, where, where you, could, you could actually envision ways where, where those dissolve away. Her new slogan uh, may be, no, we can't on some of these uh, yeah, issues. Yeah, it's not possible. I got I to gotta take a break. Uh, I, I've got a question. Uh, well, we'll get to uh, the the one place where I think uh, the Thursday night debate may have really made a difference for Hillary Clinton and one message that she may have pulled out that could really be effective as this campaign moves forward. So uh, stand by, everyone. Uh, we only have a few more minutes left. But as Wolf Blitzer would say, we're just getting started. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your broadcast. <laughs> But here's the point I want to make tonight. I am not a single issue candidate, and I do not believe we live in a single issue country. He's a one trick pony. One trick is all that horse can do. He does one trick only. It's the principal sauce of his revenue. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Last few minutes of our coverage of the uh, Thursday night Democratic debate up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with uh, journalists David Dayan and Jackie Schechner and Desi Doyen here with me. Um, Okay, Jackie, that seems to me, fair or not, that what you heard Hillary just saying here, they're calling Bernie Sanders, his campaign, uh, a single issue candidacy. And we don't live in a single issue country. Uh, it seems to me that while that it is incredibly unfair and that, uh, you know, all of the things that Bernie Sanders is calling for are he is wrapping them up into a coherent message. Uh, it is not a single issue, but it is a coherent message. And she seems like she's uh, ha- is left with nothing but an attack against him as if he does have a single issue candidacy. So I think that's an effective retort to his uh, to Bernie's coherent theme uh, from his candidacy. What are your thoughts on that? And will we hear more of that going forward? I think she's going to test that out again. Uh, he, you're right, though. He's, it's not a single issue. He's bringing it back to the economic uh, argument because it taps into everything. It, it really does touch a lot of the problems that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. And so he is putting a bow around it, and, and it's, it's a neat message, and it's an easy one for people to understand because it's 
it's hitting them on the kitchen table issues. Um, I think the, the biggest problem Clinton has right now is that nobody doubts that she's qualified to be president. I, I really believe that. Like, she is, she is infinitely qualified. She would be a fine president. I think everybody knows that. But she's not inspiring people. She's not getting people excited the way she should as the, potentially, as the potential to be the first female president. And I don't know if it's because we're tired. I don't know if it's because the Clintons had been around for a long time. I don't know if it's because the Republicans have done a good job of uh, attempting to smear her with the email server, Benghazi, the same stuff we've heard over and over again. I, I don't know why it is, but she's not exciting people the way that Sanders is, and so she's going to try to, to do what she can to poke holes in what he has, and I think that this is a strategy we're going to see, and we'll see how it plays out, because I think last night was the first time she attempted it, and a lot of the pundits are saying, ooh, that's a good one. Well, Dave, I just don't, I, I just don't know if it's going to resonate. David, uh, taking on Wall Street campaign and the campaign finance system and the tax structure and providing health care for all and free college tuition for all, <laughs> that's yeah. hardly one that's issue. Not a single issue no, it's not a single no. issue. But, but... It seems, though it's kind of Republican-ish uh, to do this, to go after his strength. I mean, because that's really a strength of, of his. If, if uh, they have textbooks down the line about how to, uh, you know, messaging for candidates, Bernie Sanders should be on the cover. She's taking on his strength with that. And I, it's, it, it may be dirty, but it seems like it's really smart politics for her, doesn't it, David? Yeah, I mean, I thought her closing statement was was pretty solid, and, and, and the thing that, that uh, resonated for me is that there's a lot of talk here that uh, this is, you know, a, a big contested primary where everyone slugs it out is bad for the Democratic Party. And I think when you see where Hillary Clinton has come from uh, to what she, where she got in that ending speech, which was actually kind of inspiring when she was talking about women's rights and LGBT rights and, 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 and you know, immigrants' rights and all those things. Uh, I, I think it's been an undeniable net positive uh, for her to have to go through this to, to really dig into the message of the Democratic Party because this is ultimately, uh, Sanders is kind of a vessel for an argument that the, the party is having with itself over how to position themselves for the future in terms of being a populist party uh, or being a party that uh, is beholden to its special interests uh, in some manner. Um, and, and for her to have to go through that, I think ultimately she's going to come out on the other side a much better candidate if she advances at all. And we've got just 30 seconds and or about a minute or so. And since I'm playing Wolf Blitzer here, predictions. Anybody want to make a prediction about Nevada or South Carolina? I'm not going to put anyone on the spot because I think predictions are so stupid. But I would like to welcome all three of you to be as stupid as you like. Jackie, let's start with you. <laughs> no, I don't want to make any predictions, but I have to say that I think it's really important that we continue to keep a close eye on Trump. And I, and I only say that because the rhetoric is getting more and more heated. Uh, I, I think it's becoming more and more, uh, it's, it's more and more of a possibility that he's going to be their nominee. And, mm -hmm. I, and, I, and it scares me, to be honest. So I, I think that, that we need to keep track of what he's doing and saying, and we need to figure out 
a way that we're going to fight against that if he does become the nominee, because I, I don't know that the normal political arguments will work, and we can't just assume that whoever our candidate is will be able to take him down easily, because I don't think any of the rules apply when it comes to how he's playing this game and how he's running this campaign. David Dayen, um, uh, uh-huh. David Dayen uh, any uh, stupid th- uh, stupid predictions or final I thoughts? I happen in Nevada. I was out there eight years ago. Those caucuses are wild. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I remember being in a casino ballroom watching the caucus and all the workers from the casino in full uniform where it was like a Halloween party. That was the, what the caucus <laughs> looks like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a state where on the Democratic side, the, the culinary union has a major role of what to say. It's almost a machine state in that sense. Uh, a, lot, a significant amount of the electorate comes from there. And so uh, that's, that's going to be a, a major contributing factor. And then we'll see what the diversity of the electorate looks like. Um, Desi, so we'll Do- Desi Doyen, uh, dumb uh, just predictions a quick, or closing uh, thoughts? No, no dumb prediction here, but a closing thought about Trump to speak to what Jackie said. I think part of this is where is the corporate media that made fun of Al Gore and made fun of Howard Dean yeah. and made fun and participated in the swift voting of John Kerry? They're not here to do the same treatment to Trump. So it's interesting how... They haven't participated like they have in the past in torpedoing the campaigns of Democrats. As Wolf Perry didn't get them good ratings. As as Wolf Blitzer would say, we've got to leave it right there. My thanks to our producer, Desi (laughs) Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course to my guests today, David Dayan and Jackie Schechner. Follow David on the Twitters at DDayan. Follow Jackie on the Twitters at Jackie Schechner. All right, that's it for today. We will be back with you next time. Oh, I think we'll be back with our our GOP debate coverage on our next thrilling episode. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you'll give us a good review. And uh, you can find and follow me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog or send me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. That's it for now. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>